Good morning, Impact. How's everybody doing? Why don't you stand in honor of God's Word? We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. Great story. Most of you have heard this before. I dare say again, and I'm saying this too much. I hope I don't have to say this as much uh, as we continue through the book of Luke, but this is another one of those stories that you know, I think people enjoy and they kind of take a surfacey look at it and they blow by it. And they don't think that there's much in here. There's tons in this story about when Jesus was a 12-year-old boy, or really a young man, kind of in that uh, in-between stage. Uh, let's pray, and then we're going to give this to God. Father, pray that you'll speak to us through your word, Lord. I pray that you'll open up a story that we've heard before, but maybe not received that much application or heart change or lessons from, Lord. May it become life to us, God, and, and transform us. Lord, there's three or four basic lessons in here that mean a world of difference, Father, from being distant from you or being close to you and walking hand in hand and side by side with you. So I pray we'll get this and that you'll speak through me in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you can follow along. I'm in the English Standard Version, which is what we use mostly around here. Beginning in verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law, this is when Jesus was taken to the temple. He's eight days old and he's circumcised and he's, and he's dedicated uh, to the Lord. And when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And specifically, this is what we're looking at today. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a whole day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and among the acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned again to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and amazed at his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us? So, some of your Bibles say, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Interesting. Why were you looking for me? Now, if you lost your child for three days, would you expect him to say, Why were you even looking for me? You might want to put him in at least time out or ground him or at least take his iPhone away if you said that. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and in favor with man. You can be seated. Tons in here today, gang. <clears throat> we'll start with a couple of questions that I get a lot as a pastor. You know, aside from the one I tell you guys who've been maybe following me for a while, a lot, I, I constantly get this question, how can I know God's will for my life? Aside from that, here's some other ones that I get. Maybe you've asked these. And if you have, then this is a sermon that you'll want to pay uh, close attention to. I don't actually have sermons I don't want you to pay close attention to, but I definitely want you to pay close one to this. Uh, people will say, why can't I find God? I'm a believer. Why do I feel like I can't find God? Or, why does God seem so far away? 
You don't have to raise your hands, but have you ever thought that? You ever asked that? Why does God seem so far away? Maybe you've asked it in a different way. Why does God seem so distant? Uh, why do I feel so cold towards God? Why do my prayers bounce off the ceiling and feel like they're going nowhere? All of these are really a, a form of the same question. Maybe you felt at one time, felt is the key word here, all fired up about God and you don't anymore. And so there's, a, there's signs, many signs of a lot of distance in your life between you and God, and you don't know how you got there. This morning you're going to learn. If you feel that way or if you ever felt that way, this morning you're going to learn how you got there. It's very real, and it can be very distressing for a believer, but it doesn't have to remain that way. This morning I'll show you how you can get back. But here's one of the things I think the pastors do. I'm kind of ashamed to admit this to I've done this too. Here's some of the things the pastors do that don't really help. They don't really help. Some of the answers they give. If you feel far from God, any of you remember this answer? Blah, blah, blah. If you feel far from God, guess who moved? You ever heard that one? If you feel far from God, guess who moved? That's so trite, but pastors say it. Apparently not to you people, but they say it. God is always near. Sometimes we just don't feel him. You ever heard that one? God's always near. Sometimes you just don't feel him. How about this? Feelings aren't even important. It's what the Bible says that matters. Has one last one. Jesus says he will never leave nor forsake you. I wouldn't worry about it. He says he will never leave or forsake you. He can't lie, so it's your problem. Don't worry about it. But again, these answers are not helpful when you're hurting, right? I mean, feelings may not, well, it's, it's not a maybe, it's a definite. Feelings don't change God. And feelings don't change whether God loves you. And if you are saved, feelings aren't going to unsave you. But they still hurt, right? I mean, that's what hurts your heart. When you feel distant, when you feel pain, when you go through trials, it's the heart that hurts. And these kind of answers don't help. What you want is that closeness to God. What you want is that healing and that excitement and that joy in your heart. Again, today we're going to find out how you can get that. In fact, today we're going to give you real answers that you really want for real pain. Like, what is, what is God doing in that desert experience? Instead of, of being in that desert experience and just crying, going, why can't I feel God in this hurt so much? And where's God? Why don't we stop and try something different? And here it is. When you're in that desert and you feel that pain... God's doing something. So let's answer today. What's he doing? Now, if you've been a believer more than five minutes, you've felt that desert. If you've been a believer more than just a little time, you know that pain. You know that distance. But here's the good news. That's not for nothing. It's for a very powerful something. If you feel separated from God, feel separated from God, why is he allowing you to feel that way? And maybe even some other things. If you're sick physically and all that, why, why doesn't he just take that away? Why is the pain in there? Why is depression in there? Can God use any of that junk? Again, we'll find out today. I'm going to give you some answers. Now, here's what I don't guarantee. Guarantee I'll give you some answers. I guarantee you that. I do not guarantee you will like them. I don't guarantee you'll like them. Some of you might really not like them. Some of you might hate them. Just don't throw things. These are the answers. And they're actually very good answers if you see them the right way. All right, so let's go back through this text that I read when you guys were standing and, and kind of see what's really in there. 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. A couple things we can learn about the early, uh, the time when Jesus was little and his parents. First of all, they were faithful to keep the festivals of the Old Testament. All kinds of holidays, all kinds of festivals uh, in the Old Testament. In fact, if you read it, you know, just kind of surfacing through the Old Testament, speed read it, which I doubt many of you have done. 
Uh, it seems like there's so many festivals that they're always playing all the time. Do these people ever get work done? There's always a festival. There's always a holiday. There's really not that many. As in fact, when you compare them to us, there's about the same amount. But theirs actually had more purpose than a lot of the ones that we have. I still haven't really figured out the purpose for Halloween, for instance. Not, not sure. You get candy and cavities, but other than that, it's not a real deep purpose. So we've got a lot. We even have some meaningless ones. <clears throat> but they had all these festivals. And getting, their purpose was for you to remember God. And specific festivals and specific feasts were for you to remember specific things about God and what He did in His grace and mercy and love so you could know His character and be more like Him. But you know what they did with a lot of these festivals? Same thing you and I do. What do we do with a lot of... Listen, tomorrow's one, right? Tomorrow is... Who are we? Memorial. That sounds a little bit like remembering, doesn't it? That's what memorial is. So who are we remembering? Anybody? Bueller? Anyone? Either you don't know or you didn't say it loud enough for my deaf ears. What is it? Veterans, right? Remembering soldiers. Remembering those who fought for what? Our freedom. I think it's uh, more than coincidence that we're going through this passage about a, a Passover feast, kind of a holiday, something they're supposed to remember, and tomorrow's a memorial day, and we're supposed to be remembering people that set us free, specifically. But I bet if an alien beamed down and watched 90% of America and how they celebrate it and had to figure out what Memorial Day is about by the celebration, he would go back to his planet and say, I think they worship barbecue. I'm pretty sure they have this festival where they bring out this metal god and smoke comes out of it and they bow down to it and they get real excited when it produces its meat and they eat it. That which was sacrificed upon those metal altars and that's it. I don't know what else it's about. Can't figure. I mean, it would be a very small portion of the, of the community they'd look at to ever figure out what the day's about, right? So for some of us, and I'm not saying who because I don't know. I don't know how many of you have military uh, folks in your family or in your background, but for some of us, we're going to celebrate. We're not going to celebrate what the day's really about. Just a very few of us. But we'll be faithful. I doubt many of you will go to work. Some of you will take the day off and you'll accept that part of it. Well, listen, they did that. They were very faithful. The text says every year. So it wasn't something that was hit or miss. It wasn't like, well, we're going to go to the Christmas service this year. I haven't gone in three years, so let's go ahead and, and get dressed up and go to Christmas Eve. Well, let's go ahead and get dressed up and go to the Easter service. I mean, they were faithful to these big festivals every year. They weren't part-time believers. They weren't part-time obedient. The Old Covenant, which we call the Old Testament, sp uh, specified these festivals and to go and to, and to participate in these, and they were obedient to that. That's good. In fact, this one's called Passover. So let me quickly tell you what that was about. If you ever saw the Ten Commandments, the cartoon, or the Charlton Heston semi-cartoon version of it, then you will see that Moses went to set his people free, the Hebrews free that were in bondage for 400 years. There was approximately 2 million men, women, and children in Egypt. There were 10 plagues that God sent to set them free. The last one uh, that he gave because Pharaoh's heart was hardened was he said, if you don't let my people go, God said this through Moses and Aaron, then I will kill your firstborn son. The angel of death will come and I'll kill your firstborn son. You let him go, your firstborn son will live. You don't obey me and he'll die. Now, the Israelites, the, the Hebrews were able to get out of this, and the way they were able to do it was to sacrifice an unblemished lamb and take the blood of that unblemished sacrificial lamb of God and put it on the doorpost in this form, right, left, and overhead. 
which they didn't know, but we know, points to the coming death of the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So what would happen is if the angel of death came, when the angel of death came and he saw the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over that house. And the firstborn son in that house wouldn't die. But what happens if a Hebrew said, well, I'm one of the children of God. I'm a Hebrew. I don't need to put that on there. This is only for the Egyptians. What would happen to his household? His firstborn would have died too. So it was the blood that brought the remission and pointed forward to Jesus Christ. So they celebrate this. But with a lot of holidays and with a lot of feasts and stuff, you can get on cruise control, right? So they were very obedient, which is very good. And they were very traditional because it says according to customs. So they got obedience to the law and obedience to customs and traditions. So Mary and Joseph not only followed the law, they followed their own customs. They're pretty faithful to this stuff. Verse 43. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. Now, that seems like a little bit of disobedience, doesn't it? You guys are afraid to say, I'm not saying that about God. You say it, preacher boy. I'm not saying it. I didn't say it was disobedient. I said it seems disobedient. Will you give me that much? Some of you are nodding, but that's all the committal you'll give me, commitment that you'll give me. Well, it does, except we don't know that his parents said, listen, when we leave in a few days, you better be there or you're losing your iPhone. You better be there, Jesus, or you're losing driving privileges on your chariot. You better be, I mean, nothing said. You know why? Because it's, this is the way we always do it. And when we leave, of course he'll be there. Of course he'll be there. He knows how this goes every year. By the way, Jesus is 12 years old by now. It says every year they went up there. So how many years has Jesus gone? 11. This is the 12th time. He does know how it goes. This is where things start going south a little bit. Not for Jesus, but for his parents. This is where the custodians of the living God lose track of them. All right, you and I, we lose our kid in one aisle of Walmart or Harris Teeter for three seconds and we panic. But our children are charming and nice, but they're probably not so... They're, they're not the Son of God. And it's kind of a big deal when you lose the Son of God for 24 hours. I want you to get five or six points out of this. I want you to write these down. First, most of us, when we walk away from God, we don't set out to walk away from God. Let me say it the simple way and then I'll explain it. Most don't set out to walk away from God as much as they drift from Him. Okay? Most don't set out to walk away from God as much as they drift from Him. Right now as I stand here, I can't think of a single person I've ever met who said today, I love God, but today I'm an experiment. I'm going to get as far away from Him as I can, and I'm, I'm going to purposely, I know He's there, so I'm walking that way. Most, most people, there may be people that get mad at God. Maybe you've gotten mad at God and said, I don't want anything to do with Him and this or that, but most people don't plan it. They don't say, I'm going to walk away. They just drift. They just drift, and they don't even know it. Verse 44, but supposing Him to be in the group, they went a whole day's journey. Here, Jesus' earthly parents are just living life. Again, they're doing what they've always done. They're going out to Passover feast. They're returning home. They're certainly not doing anything wrong. They're definitely not sinning, right? They're kind of on cruise control. This is what we've always done. This is how we've always done it. And I'm absolutely positive that they were, at least thought they were walking lockstep in God's will, on God's path, doing His will, living in obedience to Him. And I can tell you this much for certain. What they were doing was good. What they were doing was good. Andy Stanley has this book, and I love this principle that he has. The book's called The Principle of the Path, and it's really simple, but he managed to get a whole book out of it. 
And it actually is worth reading. He simply says, you know, if you are on a path that heads north, the principle of the path is if you stay on the path that heads north, you'll end up north. And the principle of the path is that if you stay on a path that's heading to this destination, that's where you'll end up. But if you want to end up there and you get on a path going that way, you won't end up there. It's a pretty simple thing, right? They thought they were on the right path, but they were on a path away from God. But they're doing godly things. And they're going through religious things that God had set up. So certainly, they, that's why they didn't figure this out. How ironic that they're doing all good things and 180 degrees off from God. Here's the problem. It was good, but it wasn't best. Here's why. God never had His people observe feasts or sacrificial rites or any temple ceremonies or any of the rest of anything like that that you find in His Old Covenant in the Old Testament to earn brownie points or to check off a list or anything like that. Would it surprise you to know, when you read the Old Testament, I know God seems religious, but He's not. In fact, God never came to this earth to bring religion, and the whole Bible's not about religion. In fact, there's so many indications in God's, God's Word that He hates religion. He came to bring relationship, right? When we sin, the whole mission from Adam and Eve on is to restore that relationship. And the Old Testament shows us how law alone can't do it. So what's the law for then? The law is really to show us how off track we are and to show us how through a couple thousand years of people trying to use the law to get on the right path, it doesn't work. And it created this overwhelming sort of hopelessness and this realization that we can't do it, enter Jesus Christ. Enter Jesus Christ. So he never brought, he never came to earth for a checklist. He had them do everything that he had them to do to remind them of who he was and everything he was doing because he loved us. That's it. Every festival, every sacrifice, every commandment, all of it is to point back to him. I know some of the feasts seem completely different from others, but if you just remember one thing about them they all have in common, they all point to him. They're all about remembering him. In fact, we have a few today, don't we? Sometimes about every other week or every couple weeks at least, we do this thing called communion, right? The Lord's Supper. And isn't it true that if we're not careful, that can become a, a checklist? Isn't it true that if we're not careful, we can go, oh, it's time for communion. I'm not really ready for it today, so I'll just make it look good. Try my best. Eat the bread, drink the juice. How hard can this be? Step one, step two. I don't think I'll get it wrong. But when it becomes that, it's hopeless. It's worthless. Probably shouldn't even do it. Because it's not there to go through step one, step two. Check this off, check that off. It's there to remind us, do this in remembrance of a couple specific things. About three, Jesus died. Specifically, his body was broken and his blood was shed. We do communion to remember those things. They did the Passover feast to remember that Jesus passed over, that it takes a sacrificial lamb, that it must be blameless, that those lambs were ordinary. One day, the perfect lamb will come and shed his blood, and then we'll not need to do sacrifices anymore and celebrate this. Passover was supposed to turn into communion. They missed it. The Jews missed it. And right here, here's a sign of how you can miss God. So Joseph and Mary were clearly being good in observing the feasts and traditions, but we're about to see that they missed the best by laser focusing on just what was good. 
A lot of times you and I, we miss God's best because we're doing what's good. A lot of times we miss God's very, very best because we're caught up on it, what's good or pretty good. You know, this happened another time. If you turn into your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, we'll see another vivid story of focusing on what's pretty good and completely missing what's best. Two very good friends of Jesus, Mary and Martha. This is towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, and he's going to visit them like he often did, verses 38 through 42. And Jesus and his disciples went on their way, and he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened up her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made, and she came to him and she asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, you're not going to go to the Lord and make that kind of bold request unless you're pretty sure that what you're asking the Lord to do is the right thing, right? So Martha's getting upset because she goes, I'm obviously doing what's right. I'm trying to make this day special. I'm trying to get all the preparations right, and my sister's just sitting there. Does it work like this in your house at all? Do some of you have the just sit there people and some of you have the do the work people? Michelle says sometimes I'm too much the sit there person. I try to tell her, obviously I'm the more godly one. I'm sitting at the feet of Jesus while you are concerning yourself. It usually doesn't work for me either if you try that one. I wouldn't recommend it. So here's what goes on. Martha was distracted by all these preparations. Lord, tell Mary to help me. Listen very closely to what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say names twice very much, like I can't think of another time, but he starts out going, Martha, Martha, when do you say names twice? When somebody's not listening, right? Nathan, Nathan, when you say it again, trying to get eye contact, so I think Mary was just mad, tell her to help me, I'm in the kitchen, I'm, I'm the one making this day happen, she's lazy, she's got Martha, and she won't even go, Martha. What? Listen closely. You're the one who missed it. Mary's doing what's right. You're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better. Some of your Bibles might say here, Mary has chosen what is best, and it will not be taken away from her. So you know what Jesus didn't say? He didn't say, you know what, Mary, you might think this is good, but you're actually in there sinning. What you're doing is a sin. He said, I mean, those are many things, but right now they are distractions when compared with best. Here's what Jesus knows. I don't have much time left. I'm about to sit down and teach. I don't really care about how nice the table mats look right now. This is the end of my ministry, and Mary seems to sense that, and she's hanging on every word. My guess is Mary will jump in and help when this is over. But she's right. Hanging on my every word is more important than doing the dishes right now. Do them later. I'm not taking that away. I'm not telling Mary to come join you. In fact, what I'm saying to you, Martha, come join Mary. Ouch. But really, gang, what this is is a lesson of good versus the best. Instead of anchoring around what's best... Sometimes we drift by choosing what's good. 
real important to talk about this idea of drifting, because if you've ever felt from, far from God, here's what's really happening. Where does drift come from on the open seas? Let's look at this physically. I'm not a, I don't know what an, an oceanographer or whatever studies the winds and currents or whatever, but I, I came up with about three things. Maybe there's more. Write these down. If you drift in the open sea, I figure it's either the wind, right? That's good, Pastor Rob. Or current. Does that make sense? Or a storm. There might be more, but those are the three basic things. I saw the movie Cast Away with Tom Hanks. I, I, I know it causes these things. Wind, current, storms. <clears throat> I want to look at a couple of these things spiritually for just a moment because I bet we blow by this. First of all, the winds of change, the current of culture, ferocity of storms. There are three things. If you don't, I pay, don't pay close attention, we'll find ourselves very, very far from God spiritually with these three things that are pretty normal and are going to happen periodic in your life. A couple things about it before we move on. First of all, change is good. Change isn't the enemy. A lot of people just hate change. They just hate it. I don't like change. I'm a creature of habit. I always eat the same thing. I always go to the same restaurant. That's it. Don't rock my boat. Don't change anything. But gang, change can be good. It can be bad. Change for change's sake is probably not good. Just changing, you know, like changing the whole format, the whole direction of the church, just because you're bored is probably not good. But sometimes we need to change, and sometimes it's good. For example, some churches, I'm going to get, um, do I need to say this? That's too late now, I'm, I'm, I'm out there. Some, changes, some churches, you know, they're, they're still banging away at the, you know, organ, like Phantom of the Opera, and wondering why no young people are in the church. Why don't they come? Where are they at? Maybe we just need to do what we're doing louder. They like loud music. Let's play the organ louder. They still don't come. Let's add some bass on the organ. They're still not coming. Well, gang, I have, you, you ever pull up to a traffic light? I love this. And you find out that there's something wrong with your car that you didn't know until you were at the traffic light because all of a sudden, either something's wrong with your car because it's shaking or there's about a, you know, 6.3 on the Richter scale earthquake taking place and it's all shaking, but it seems to be in rhythm because somebody has pulled up and is sharing their music with you. And their bass is so loud that your car is actually vibrating. Some of you go, no, I'm never... If you don't know that and you're under 20, you're doing it. You're the one who's pulling up with your music that loud. This is a little off subject, but please don't share your music with me. I have my own music going on in the car. And it's better than yours, frankly. But if a church was, you know, assuming that... that that kids should come in and just force feed what we have going and like it, I would say this to them. I have yet to hear a, a car full of young people pull up at a light jamming a mighty fortress is our God. Maybe they're out there somewhere. Have you guys heard them? I haven't heard this. Or any other hymn or any other... I, and, and they're not wrong. Beautiful hymns. But I have yet to experience that. Because they're not listening to that. So change can be good, keeping up with the people you want to reach. But change can be bad too. In recent years, there's been a trend among pastors. I have no idea how you figure this is good. But there's quite a few pastors, if you listen to podcasts, and usually young, that are coming out and going, man, I need to throw in a couple of cuss words in my sermon because that's really cool. 
And there's not one or two. There's a lot. It's in a pastor down in Atlanta area who occasionally will drop F-bombs in his sermon. And I'm trying to sit there and go, okay, how is that helping reach the lost? Paul said that I will become all things to all types of people that I might win some for the gospel. Now, when Paul said I'll become all kinds of things to all kinds of people, I guarantee you he didn't mean I will also sin. He meant I'll do all kinds of things to reach them, but there's a point. There's a line you don't cross. By the way, if, the world, if somebody from the world who's hurting and has seen that the world doesn't work sets foot in church, they don't want to see and hear the same things that don't work out there. Right? The reason they're there is because it's not working. So if their friends are talking like that and they come in and the pastor's talking like that, you may sound cool, you really don't. Unbelievably dorky to do that. You may think you sound cool, but that person's disconnecting and going, well, there's nothing different in here, then I get out there. It's kind of like if I say, man, I really want to reach drug addicts. I really have a call to reach crackheads. Therefore, next Sunday, I'm going to smoke crack so they know that I'm really cool here up front. That'll be my last Sunday, first of all. Second of all, I'll be arrested. I'll be, a prison ministry will be my next one. So Paul was saying, no, I don't do what they're doing, but I can understand what they're doing, and I know what they're doing, and I will relate, and I will keep up. Maybe some of you think God doesn't want us to relate or keep up, that maybe we should just stay put and let the world come to us. Gang, even Jesus came preaching relevantly. You know why they got the religious leaders, one of the reasons they got most angry with God with Jesus when he came is because he would not preach constantly in the temple and he would not just unroll the scrolls and read them. He commented on them like it was him because it was and he went out on the hillsides with the regular people and taught them and hung out with sinners. Everything he did was completely taboo but it was relevant and that's why the people came. It's what they needed. It's what they needed. So he did keep up with the times but obviously he didn't sin. So there's another thing about change too, cultural change. The current of culture is similar, but there are some differences. Culture is a larger thing. Culture has to do with whatever all or most of society is currently doing. One example I thought of is in our culture, our society, and it's been going on for years, but most America likes football, college football, NFL football, even high school football. They prefer football of a different kind around the world, and they call it football. But it's not football. What is it? Soccer. And so you go to some countries and you even talk about playing football, they're not going to come out with a pigskin. They're going to come out kicking a ball. And they prefer that. That's a cultural thing. In fact, if you go to certain cultures, try You can't even get a pickup game of football going. They don't want to play it. You come to certain places in America and you want to get a pickup game of, even though soccer's growing, they want to play football. They want to play our sports, depending on what's popular. So that's a good thing. That's fine. Know your culture. But like change, some cultures and societies see the masses thinking and living in culturally sinful ways. There are cultures that do not even allow the worship of Jesus Christ. Worse, there are cultures that demand you worship a false god. At that point, the culture is sinful. And you need to change and go in a different direction than culture. Some things are neither good nor bad. They're just kind of neutral in culture. Like disco in the 70s. Raise your hand if you ever danced in the 70s underneath a globe that had little mirrors on it. 
I know there's more than five or six people that danced underneath. Raise your hand if you ever wore a white leisure suit. Am I the only one? In my defense, I was 12 and I had to. I was made to wear it by my dad. And we listened to a group of prepubescent, because they never changed, singers called the Bee Gees. And their voice stayed that way forever. The few surviving Bee Gees still haven't had their voice change. So it's not really good or bad, just lame in that case, okay? Storms, that's the last thing. Storms are the most obvious and immediate cause of drift from the Savior because they result in potentially one of two strong reactions. Storms will either make you better as a person or bitter as a person. I mean, spiritually speaking, there's only two things that are going to happen. You don't go through a life-changing, horrendous, painful storm and just go, I'm unchanged. I'm unfazed. You don't. It'll either make you stronger or it'll make you bitter and it'll destroy you. I think very few believers realize the spiritual value of storms in your life. Worse, very few believers realize that God not only allows storms in your life, sometimes God brings them to strengthen you. Just like the strong winds cause a tree's roots to go deeper, that's what God wants to see happen in storms in your life. Don't take my word for it. You can write this down. James 1, 2 through 4 says as much. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, storms, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, deep roots, strength. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Don't quit right away. Let it work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That doesn't mean flawless and and sinless, but it means perfect and complete means mature, spiritually mature like Christ. So it's bitter or better, stronger or weaker. So you got change, cultural change, and storms. Back to Mary and Joseph. Gang, they were doing what was right and doing what was good. They weren't sinning, they were just on cruise control. Believe it or not, there's every indication that they just kind of entered a sort of spiritual retirement. And and when you look at them, you think, that's not completely hard to understand, especially with Mary, right? She's already bore the Son of God. She's already seen the virgin birth, a miraculous birth, and had that complete privilege, and for 11 years has been raising the best she can. Why not sit back a little and let some other people have some spiritual chances in God's kingdom building work? Why not sit back and just go, you know, it's time for the youngins to chip in. I'm just going to kind of learn about Jesus and wait for the day. Well, not the day he returns. He's right there in front of her. It's a little different for her. But I'm just going to go on cruise control. But listen, gang, here's the danger of early spiritual retirement or cruise control. When you do that, you may not think you're walking away from God. You may not think that. But that sets the drift and you start drifting away. And pretty soon you're going to look up and realize that you're miles and miles and miles, a great, great distance away from God. All right, we need to pick up the pace, but these last things are pretty quick. When we realize we've drifted, we try many faulty ways to get back to God. This is what a lot of believers do. If you're privileged enough to wake up and realize, oh my goodness, I don't feel God, I don't feel His presence in my life, I've drifted, you're going to, probably like a lot of believers, start your own idea of getting back. Many faulty ways to get back to God. They don't work. Let's take a look at them. I'm just going to give you two, A and B. 
A, we make assumptions. B, we retrace our steps. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So first of all, we make assumptions. Jesus, I can't find him. He should have been right here with us. Well, certainly he's in our group. And it was a pretty big group, right? Said they traveled with relatives, and that means second, third, fourth, fifth cousins, and that means everybody probably in their town. It says acquaintances, so it was a pretty big loop of people. It was not like they turned around with just 15 people and said, where's Jesus? Probably more like a couple of hundred. It was Passover. There could be up to two million Jews gathered in Jerusalem. So there's a big entourage that were going, a lot of people traveling on the road. So at least give them that. But they made assumptions when they couldn't find him that he, he can't be anywhere else than right here with our group. So they began looking through the group. When they didn't find him, they expanded their assumptions to maybe he didn't get the memo and he's still back there in Jerusalem. But when they went back to Jerusalem, you're going to find out in a moment that it took them three days to find Jesus. Imagine the panic, gang, right? You're looking for your 12-year-old, the Son of God, and Mary especially was tuned in. She knew who Jesus was. I messed up. I lost God. That's fairly major. And you get back there and think, okay, we'll remember. But here's what they did. They retraced their steps. They retraced their steps, not God's. And let me tell you why it's a bad idea to retrace your steps if you've drifted away from God. Because the things that got you to drift away from God probably weren't good things, right? Let's see, where did I first drift? I started going to parties. Then I started drinking a lot. The party I went to last weekend, that was one of the worst, most violent. The cops came and everything. There's another one this weekend. I'll go to that. Because that's the last place I was. And then I'll back up from there and keep... Well, you're going to go right back into the cesspool. Don't retrace your steps to get back. Retrace the steps that get back to God. That's different. That's different. And it's kind of like this, gang. Sometimes we miss God because we expect God to follow us instead of following Him. Have you ever noticed that? God, here's what I'd like you to do in my life. Um, I'd like to do great big things for you, and I have three of them. Here's what they are. So if you'll bless me on these three things in this order, I think we can team up and things will be great. And God's going, those aren't my three things. In fact, I have different things for you. How about you follow me instead of me following you? Because I don't know if you looked up lately, but there's a cliff right there. And I don't want you to go off of it. James 1, 5 through 8 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and God gives generously to all without reproach. He's not going to get mad at you. Just don't doubt. Now listen to this. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed, which is causing drift. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded person, unstable in all his ways. Any boaters in the group today? It's Memorial Day weekend. I guess if you're a boater, you're not here today. You're out in a boat. Well, if you're out in a boat on a windy day, you ever notice those white caps out there in the ocean? I mean, I get pretty bored sometimes when I'm on a long trip on a boat, but have you ever watched the real big ones and you just kind of trace them for a while? You ever try to just trace them and see where they're coming from and how long they'll last? Well, what's happening is you're not going to be able to track them very long on a windy day because they kind of go away, but then it looks like they pop back up. Oh, there it is. And then they're over here and, you know, the water's mixing and actually it says according to scripture here, waves are not, it's not the one wave going in one line. It's being tossed and driven and there's current and wind and you don't know where it's going. It's just meandering. 
And what James is saying is, if you don't ask in faith and you don't believe that God's goodness and will is best, you'll be just like that wave. You will drift. You'll be all over the map. You will have no direction. People drifting away from God are the same way, unstable, unpredictable, and spiritually unreliable. Now, I know you don't want that. You're going to have to try something different. Granted, Mary and Joseph had to be, have greater faith than you and I will be called upon to have in our lifetime because none of us has ever had to look at our three-year-old son and raise him on the one hand and revere and worship him on the other. We don't have that. That's pretty challenging. Nevertheless, let me ask you this question. When did Jesus become God when he came to this earth? When did Jesus become God? It's not a trick question. But pastor, your questions are always trick questions. Now this one's not a trick, it's very straightforward. When did Jesus become God when he came to this earth? I don't know if I've ever been more scared for you people. This is not hard. When? What? No? Become God? He's always God. He didn't become God when he came to this earth. That means when Mary's holding the newborn baby, is she holding a human baby or God or both? Both. When he's a toddler, a three-year-old, is stumbling around and learning to walk, because it says he grew in stature and wisdom, is he a human toddler or God or both? When he's a 12-year-old back in Jerusalem, is he a 12-year-old that just somehow reached that pinnacle of knowledge? He's a prodigy, let's say. Or is he God? Or is he both? He's both. So it's a little bit more challenging for them, but when they go back to Jerusalem and they're looking for Jesus, the boy, they're also looking for God. He didn't become God. He came as God. He was already God. He's as much God at three as he is at 30, as he was at 12, as he is as a baby in the manger. All right, here's the third thing, quickly, speeding up here a little bit. The greater the distance from God, gang, the greater the danger. The greater the distance from God, the greater the danger. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. A day's journey. Again, can you imagine that? I mean, if, I, if we went on a vacation, you know, to... Hawaii or Alaska, and we're flying back home. It takes about five hours to get to California from Hawaii, and then another five to get here, and we arrive home, and then the next morning we wake up, and oops, Juliana's still in Hawaii. In this day and age, that's a little scary, isn't it? Beginning, it wasn't like it was that safe back then. They just had different things. They weren't worried about stalkers and the stalker vans and all this stuff, but they're worried about thieves on the road, and they're worried about the Romans, who didn't care much for the Jews. There were things to worry about, and there were a lot of people gathered in Jerusalem. Like I said, a couple of million at that time. Anything could have happened to a 12-year-old boy. So they were concerned, and they were too far away to run to Jesus's, and that's probably the mixed feelings they have, rescue in five minutes. It's going to take them a day just to get back. Now, here's the problem. When we get far away from God, our tendency is to say, you don't love me, God, because I don't feel you in my heart. Now, I'm going to pray, God, and here's what I want you to do. Overwhelm me with your Holy Spirit. You got one chance, God. I want to feel you in a big way. And if I don't feel you in five minutes, you don't love me, I quit. Now, I don't want a show of hands here, but how many of you have ever prayed a, a day? 
two days, three days for God to do something or show his power in your life. And when he didn't do it, you quit. I have. I just get mad at God. Why don't you respond the way I want you to respond? And because he didn't respond in 24 hours or 48 hours or 72, you quit. Or there's trouble in your family or there's trouble in your marriage and you, and you try to work it out and you go to counseling once and the person doesn't respond. So you quit. So you quit. Gang, the fact is the further away you are, the greater the danger. It may take a little effort to get it right, to get back. Now there's two types of distance, just so you know what you're up against. There's a spiritual distance and there's a time distance. I'll quickly tell you what these are. The spiritual distance can be there regardless of how much time you spend with God. If you can read your Bible every single day, you can pray every single day, you can go to church every single week and be spiritually distant from God. It's true. I can work on sermons 20 or 30 hours a week, try to dissect them and put them together, but if I'm not spending my personal time with God, I can be distant from God. Did you know that? Sure. So there's a spiritual distance that's kind of regardless of time. And there's a time distance. That's pretty much the polar opposite of what I just said. There's a distance you can create by spending less time in God's Word, by spending less time in prayer, by spending less time in His house, by spending less time in your life group with His people. There's a time distance that can occur. So there's two types of distance. Keep that in mind while we wrap up here. Verse 46, after three days they found Him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Again, it might take a, a while to find God, but don't give up. It might take a while to find God, but don't give up. They didn't find Jesus right away, but they didn't give up after five minutes either because you know what, gang? It wasn't an option. If you feel far from God this morning, I'm going to ask you something, and you need to answer it in your heart honestly. How much do you want to find your way back? How important is it to you to find Jesus and reconnect again? Now, you may say to me, you might nod and you might say, it's very important, it's the most important thing in my life. Well, gang, your actions are going to say that. They could have said, we really want to find our son. We've got to find Jesus. We've been looking for a day. You know what? We're not going to teach him a lesson. We're leaving. We spent 24 hours looking for him. We're gone. Or, or even two days. And gang, if it wasn't three days, it could have been a week or two weeks. I don't think they'd have given up. It's not an option. They're given the privilege of raising the son of God. Leaving and giving up without finding him is not an option. Besides, they know their God. Even though he's a young boy, they know him. And they know in their heart, and they know him from the Old Testament. If you seek God, you will find him. Scripture says, all those who seek him, find him. But here's what it doesn't say, in five minutes. It doesn't say that. All those who seek him will find him in less than 48 hours. Just just doesn't give you a time frame at all. But I'm telling you, the greater the distance, either spiritually or time-wise, the greater the danger. Don't give up because if you seek him, you will find him. When Jesus' parents left Jerusalem and Jesus behind, here's some assumptions they made. They supposed he would be somewhere among them? Wrong. That he'd be found searching nearby? Wrong. That he'd be in various places in the city other than the temple, which we're going to find out was where he was at? wrong. Okay, how did they get it so wrong? Because they were expecting, and I said this earlier, and it's the fifth point, they were expecting God to follow them instead of them following God. 
don't expect God to follow you. You need to follow Him. You ever notice how so often we make our plans and then we pray for God to bless them? I love how Rick Warren shared this. He said, you know, it's more like this when you, when you follow God, and I'm from Southern California, so I know this. When you go uh, surfing, I've never, I've never seen a surfer out there, you know, waving a magic wand going, behold, I'm, I'm going to create a wave right here, the perfect wave. They don't create waves, right? They just wait on their boards, sitting up on their boards, turning backwards, looking in the horizon. For what? The perfect wave. Why? Because they know it's coming. And when it comes, a real good one, they're going to catch it and ride it. They don't make the waves. They just ride them for all they're worth. They just ride them for all they're worth. That's what it's like when you follow God in His steps instead of asking Him to follow in your steps. And I promise you, God is already working in your world. Find out where He's moving and follow Him. Find out where He's creating a wave. I believe He's creating one right here. And this summer is committed at Impact Church to training the volunteers and getting everybody ready for what? This fall. Because I believe this fall, a wave is going to come. A pretty big wave. And we're going to need volunteers to be ready for it. I'm not going to create it, but I believe God is. That's what He's put on our hearts. And we need an army of people to be ready for the people, the lost, that come to hear the gospel. We're not creating it, but we're going to join it. So they go on in the scripture and they find out as they look for him that he's in his father's house. And he sounds like he's being a little bit disrespectful and we'll close with this and he says, why were you looking for me? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know? And I promise you gang, he is not being flippant and he is not being disrespectful. I think he's being very kind to his parents, but he's speaking now as God, not as a 12 year old kid. He's saying, didn't you know the whole program, why I came, the whole thing, what Gabriel told you? This is where I have to be. It begins. I have to be in my father's house. I have to be close to him. Why did you look everywhere else for me than the one place I have to be? Should have been the first place you looked. Gang, do you know what the greatest season of drift is every year for believers? Take a guess. Somebody said it all right, I heard it. Summer. We are entering the greatest season every year of the four seasons of drift. Why? I'm just going to be honest and blunt with you, and some of you aren't going to like it because you say I'm a party pooper, but people don't just go on a vacation in the summer, gang. They go on a vacation from God. They do. And a lot of things get put on the wayside. A lot of spiritual lives go into cruise control in the summer, and we think it's harmless. Gang, and nobody loves pulling away with their family and spending time with their family you know, away from the everyday hustle and bustle of life than I do. I I'm with you. I love my time. But a lot of times when we go on vacation, we'll find a church there and we'll go and we'll, we'll send our tithe in automatically. Our spiritual life doesn't go on hold. We don't go into, if we go on a three-week vacation, it's not a three-week vacation from God. It's a vacation, but not from God. We still have our devotions. We still spend our time in God's Word. Everything there stays the same. <clears throat> a lot of us, we take vacations from God, and then when we get back, it's real funny, because when you get back in August or the end of August and it's back to school, churches just kind of blow up. But a lot of people have created a, a distance there, and they're going, well, I'll just go back, start worshiping, I'll pick up where I left off. Don't be surprised if five minutes in church doesn't get you back. 
you might have created a great distance, it may take some work to get back. That doesn't mean that God's backing away from you as you go towards Him. He's not. It may take you a while to get your heart right. Here's the last thing. True disciples sign up for a marathon, not a sprint. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So Jesus is 12-year-old. He told him, this is, remember the real reason I came. This is what it's all about. You follow me. I don't follow you. And then he takes the next several years, really more than another decade or two, and he's submissive to them. Because his time, he's not in a hurry. He's not panicking going, man, I hope Pastor Rob gets this because if we don't have a grand opening in September, then impact won't, he's not doing that. Right now in this summer, I guarantee you he's getting our hearts ready and he needs this whole mission ready. If we're not ready by August or September and it's October or whatever, then God is molding hearts and that's more important. He's not in a hurry. His timing is perfect. And so until he was 30 years old, he didn't kick off that world-changing ministry. Now listen, gang, even if you don't write things down, I don't want you to walk out of here today and, and just go, you know, I heard some inspiring things about how you drift. I wish I could remember that, but how do I apply this? Let me tell you four quick things. I'm going to tell you nothing about them because they're too obvious. I'm going to just list them and close. But if you remember these things, it's a good chance you won't take the season of drift and be one of those drifters. You'll stay anchored to him. Be a strong summer. Number one, don't miss church when you're in town. Jesus said, where was I going to be? I'm in my father's house. Did you not know? It's not a building. If it was, we wouldn't be meeting in a gym. It's about his people. So when you're in town, don't say, well, it's summer. I want to sleep in. I was late. I'm having a bad hair day. It's too humid. It might rain. None of that. When you're in town, be in his house. Look in the first place. God is everywhere, but look in the first place where he's the most powerful with his bride, with the church. Next, get on a Bible reading and prayer plan, even a summer reading plan that helps you so that you can stay with it instead of being just hit or miss or, hey, if I feel like it, I'll read the Bible today. Hey, if I feel like praying, I'll pray today. Get on a plan that helps you stay on a plan. Number three, and there's only four, keep meeting with your life group. This might help you. Some of you go, well, you know, it's hit or miss in the summer. Some people are gone. So don't make it militant and don't make it every week have to be a religious study of some kind. Maybe just get with your, fel your fellowship group, your life group in the summer, sometimes just to be together. It's okay. Just to have fun. Just to go out and, and, and see a ball game or have a cookout or something like that. But don't give them up or take a vacation from your small group. And finally, don't take a, a vacation from supporting God's work. You know, all over the country, churches will start a fund. I've done this my whole ministry existence. Not because I wanted to because we pretty much had to. We would start a fund, we have it here at Impact, a summer slump fund. Do you know what that's for? It's because we absolutely know, I learned it the hard way, that when we enter summer, if we don't have a, a, a savings saved up, most of God's people, every single week they're away, will not come and make it up. Even though Paul said each week, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, when you come to worship, set aside a certain sum for giving back, for his ministry, according to how he has blessed you, each week on the Lord's Day. Why? Because money's powerful competitor on the throne of your heart. Paul says, you got to dethrone it every week. Just like you could set up a Bible reading plan that on you version reminds you, an alarm goes off every day you know. Not so you can check it off on your list, gang, but so that you can keep that spiritual distance small.
that gap between you got small. Listen, this is my wife, Michelle. Say hi to the people. If I want to relate to Michelle, the worst thing I could do is move to Hawaii without her and call her twice a year. That's not going to work, right? I need to make sure the distance between us is small and talk to her and spend time with her. Otherwise, we're going to drift apart. It's the same way with God. Gang, let's make this a powerful summer. I'm going to be asking a lot of you, so when you're in town, don't run scared. It's a good thing. But to build a movement takes a lot, gang. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of sacrifice, but it'll be worth it. Let's pray. Father, open up our hearts, Lord. Help us to see that this simple message is not just there for, for people to see that in the Bible we do have some stories of you under the age of 30. Lord, nothing's wasted in your word, God. Father, help us to see that from this simple story, you didn't become God at 20 or 30. You were God at 12. You've always been God. You were God as a, as a toddler. You are God as a baby. And therefore, when Jesus' parents were looking, when your parents were looking for you, God, they weren't looking for a 12-year-old kid. They were searching for God. They were trying to get back to you, Lord. And the principles for how they did it and how they learned to do it and how they drifted are no different today, God. Help us as a church and as individuals to stay close to you, to stay tethered to your word and in relationship and faithfully committed to prayer, Lord. Help us to be faithfully committed to this movement and to giving sacrificially to it, God, and then to be thankful to partner up with you and the privilege it is to be a part of a movement in this work. God, we believe you're going to do something great and truly make an impact through this church. We're so excited for it. And I pray you'll keep bringing people who have the heart and commitment for this mission in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us. See you all next week.